All right, well, if I encourage someone to attend Rooted, it would be because Rooted encourages you to have daily devotions, which are valuable and, and we all we, we need that. We get busy and, it, and we get out of that routine and it really helps to, to get back into the routine of, of daily devotions with the Lord. I, I think the most powerful thing of the Rooted program for me, and, and, and I've heard others say this as well, the stronghold tonight. I, I think as, as Christians, we allow sin to creep into our lives and, and maybe don't think of them as strongholds. On the stronghold night, we, we, we pray over those strongholds and, and, and really address them as strongholds. And I think maybe identifying underlying issues uh, that, that are part of those is also really helpful. In, in the Rooted program, you, you have to allow yourself to be known. And I think several people in our group were really amazed um, how, how quickly everyone was able to be real with each other. I, I, don't, I don't think it was a, a fake uh, group or, or a facade of any kind. We as Christians need community, and that's, that's really valuable. I think overall, the Rooted program is, is a, a really good program, and, and hopefully the relationships that are built in Rooted um, continue, and all of it, everything continues outside of Rooted. Ser serving others and just the heart of, of serving, the heart of ministry, all of it should, should continue, and it's just the beginning of a life of ministry. I want us to conclude uh, this series on uh, uh, this Rooted series. The goal of this series was really not just to launch into uh, the Rooted groups, and this isn't just something that's going to be a one-semester thing. It's going to be a part of the life of our church, but it was really birthed out of the recognition that um, Kelly and I, at the beginning of the year, just really felt like, as a church, we weren't we weren't super successful at taking people closer and deeper into their relationship with the Lord. And we have this amazing opportunity and privilege to be able to lead you as a church, and, uh, and we want to steward that leadership well. And so we looked for uh, a program, a curriculum, something that would effectively do this, and, uh, and we found Rooted. And the truth is, is when we set out to launch it uh, starting in January, uh, I wasn't sure if we were going to pull it off by the fall. And I don't normally call out staff members and stuff, but uh, the truth is, is I went to Pastor Lucy and I just said, hey, uh, I really want to launch this. I don't have the bandwidth to do this on my own. Is this something that you can help me with? And, uh, and Pastor Lucy just ran with it. She, we sent her to the training. She started leading a, a group of people through it in a beta test that are now your rooted group leaders. And, uh, and now here we are. She'll be there tonight getting ready to celebrate and launch all y'all, all y'all into the Rooted groups. And, and so it's exciting. This is our first launch, and we have over 50 of you that are going to participate. It's about 10% uh, of our church, maybe a little bit higher than that. It's just amazing. And so I'm excited. I'm ex I've been through the curriculum. I'm excited for you guys to go through it. It's not really curriculum as much as it is kind of an everyday beginning to change your life and press into your relationship with the Lord. Uh, today, I want us to conclude this series really with uh, the understanding and the premise that um, go, kind of going back to, to where we started and then moving us forward from here. Uh, when we started this, we talked about the early church in Acts and when, uh, when they prayed a specific prayer. They prayed a prayer uh, that said, God, would you give us boldness 
And scripture tells us that when they prayed that prayer to give us boldness to take the message of Jesus to the world, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were emboldened to go out into the world and preach the gospel. Uh, and so I want us to just be reminded of the fact that as we, as we conclude this series, the whole premise of this was could we pray that prayer that says, God, would you give us great boldness? And not just great boldness to look inward and to, to live this out in our personal, uh, quiet, private life, but to actually be bold to take the message of Jesus to everyone we come into contact with. It's a part of our DNA. It's a part of, of how, it's why we're here today. Because a group of people prayed a prayer and said, God, would you give us the boldness to take the message of Jesus to the world? And they did. The problem is, or the challenge, rather, is that we have an enemy of our soul, an enemy who doesn't want us to carry that ball down the field, that wants things to stop, that, that doesn't want the message of Jesus spread. And he really begins to counteract this message of Jesus, this counteract, this bold, boldness to carry it out uh, in a few different ways. Uh, one of the ways that Satan counterattacks uh, our uh, group of people who are big and bold and ready to take the message of Jesus to the world is through persecution. If you, uh, if you are persecuted, the goal of that is to become a secret Christian. And in the case of the Church of Acts, they uh, certainly there was persecution that came their way. In fact, if you fast forward from Acts chapter 6, where we're going to be in just a moment, to Acts chapter 7, you see one of the longest messages ever given in the Bible, and it's from a guy named Stephen, who was ultimately martyred for the message of Jesus. That there was all of this persecution that was coming the church's way. And interestingly enough, I, I want to be careful in this because we live in a world where Christians, followers of Jesus, are actually being martyred, persecuted. They live in a, in a culture and in a time where their faith, if carried out, if lived out, could cost them their life. And so I would never claim to say that on that same level or at that same scale, we are a persecuted people. Because the truth is, is we can, you drove here freely. Uh, we have a sign out on, our, on, on, on the road out there that says this is a church. And we gather here freely knowing that we can worship God without fear of losing our life. That being said, I do think that we are living in a culture and in a time in which we are being culturally persecuted. Where where it's becoming more and more difficult for us to share our beliefs, our faith, to, to communicate what it is that we believe in the gospel of Jesus to people around us for fear not of losing our life, but fear of maybe losing our social life, for fear of, losing, of being ostracized or considered a Jesus freak, for fear of uh, not being invited to our HOA parties because we're those Jesus people. So certainly the, the, the persecution is not the same, but if the enemy can do anything, it is to get us to live this life in secret, this Christ-following life that we live. 
Now, interestingly, as you may know, that in countries where there is persecution to the point of death and martyrdom and all of that, one would think that that would silence the people, but it actually emboldens them even more. And you see the spread of the message of Jesus even stronger. And my prayer for us as a church is that uh, no matter what our culture does around us, we would be living a life of boldness. And we would be unafraid to share the gospel message of Jesus to everyone we come into contact with. The second counterattack that our enemy is trying to get followers uh, to remain silent is through compromise. To, to back down on the truth of God's word. That if we could just get, if he could just get followers of Jesus to to minimize or to back off of what God's word says and not to actually say, well, it's kind of subjective. It's kind of, well, whatever. You can take it however you want. And all of a sudden, we have people who are calling themselves followers of Jesus, but they're not actually living out the truth of God's word. And so instead, what we have is a bunch of image makers instead of authentic followers and you, you end up with people who maybe on the outside look like they have it all together, but, but if you scrape past that facade and you get past that surface, what you find is a life that is broken and hurting and inauthentic. But the most tricky of all of the counterattacks is the one that we're going to talk about today. And it comes from Acts chapter 6, and it's the, it's the counterattack to overwhelm the church. And what I mean by this is, is that there's such big problems in this world, right? I mean, there's these big issues. And, and if the enemy could do anything, he would, he, he would try to get us to turn back inward and focus on ourselves instead of having an outward focus. To, to say to us, listen, th there is all kinds of problems in this world that are so big that little old you can't make a difference, the Lifehouse Church, it's great, it's, it's a nice church, but let's be honest, you're, you're not a real large church, and so what kind of difference can you make? That, that there's, there's something that the enemy wants to do in breeding that lie to us to keep us from doing anything, to keep us from looking outward at all. We just hunker down and say, let's just wait till Jesus comes back. So I want us to take a look at a problem that the early church faced. It's in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In, the, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So what's happening in this passage is that there's this problem in their culture, this society that they live in. And the problem in the society was that there were Hellenistic Jews and then there were Hebraic Jews. And, and the differences between them weren't like right and wrong. It wasn't like these, you know, the, the Hebraic Jews were right and the Hellenistic Jews were wrong. It was a cultural difference. It was an eth ethnic dis difference, that, that there was something that was, was different among them culturally. Uh, it, maybe it was a political, uh, diff differing political views or different views on the social issues of life. And because there were differences and the majority of people were Hebraic Jews, what happened was is 
the Hebraic Jews were being taken care of. The widows were being taken care of first. They were being attended to. And the Hellenistic Jews who embraced the Greek language and embraced the Greek culture, they were looked down upon. And this issue was rampant in their society. And what happened is, is it found its way into the church. And I don't think I have to tell you that that, that still happens today. We bring our cultural biases, our prejudice in with us. And as a result, in this case, widows in the first century were incredibly marginalized and exposed as a group of people. When their husbands died, when they were alone, they had no recourse. And so they weren't being treated fairly in the church. And it became a really, really messy problem. Now, one of the observations that we can make from Acts chapter 6 is the church is only about two months old, right? It's, it's, just, it's just born. And the church is already doing something very interesting. So two months into the establishment of the church, it begins automatically caring for the marginalized, caring for the forgotten and the lost. And I wonder why that is. Why would that be the very first thing that the early church would begin to do? Well, if you don't know the answer to that, it's because it's the heart of God. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. It says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome, who shows no partiality. He accepts no bribes. And so, God shows no partiality, right? I mean, that's what it clearly says right there. He, he says he doesn't, but then if you look and you keep on reading, he kind of shows at least some partiality. He defends, he has a bias for the cause of the fatherless, for the orphan and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And this is what the next verse says. He says, you remember to take care of these people because you were once slaves in Egypt. So the reason why we take care of the marginalized and the forgotten and maybe the reason why we take care of those who are in need is not only because it's God's heart and not because it's just Jesus's heart, but it's because we understand that we are actually acting out our salvation in what scripture talks about in fear and trembling. That we're actually beginning to live out our salvation that we recognize that all of us lived in spiritual poverty at one time. That we ourselves have created a mountain of moral debt, one that we can't renegotiate, and so we are hopeless and we are helpless before God. But we know, but Jesus, that Jesus on the cross, Jesus dying for us, Jesus coming to this earth, becoming poor, humbling himself, dies on a cross, raises again. And because of Jesus, we begin to live that out in our life. Because we understand that we have forgiveness. We understand grace, that we can have a heavenly father because he died in our place. And for these early Christians, these early followers of Jesus, they understood that. And so for them, this comes naturally. It, it's automatic for these guys, right? They're like, they're, there's, this is a messy problem, but, but you know what? We're going to move to the poor. We're going to move to the marginalized and the forgotten. And, 
And in this case, the Hellenistic widows are being treated and discriminated against, and the Hebraic widows are being treated more fairly, and they're saying, that's not right. And so this is what they did. In verse 2, it says, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together, and they said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, and the apostles laid hands on them, and they prayed for these men, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's what's going on here. The church at this point is about 20,000 people. And the apostles, there's just 12 of them. There's just 12, and they recognize that their job is to serve the church by, by teaching God's word, by prayer, and they had to be involved with the poor, of course. The issue was that they couldn't administrate it. They go, this is too big of a leadership problem. It's, it's important. It's got to be dealt with. And so there needs to be more leadership. And if the church is ever going to do anything, leaders have to step up. They've got to organize and lead the people. And we all have to participate in solving this problem. And so they choose seven leaders. They laid hands on them, prayed over them. And there's qualifications, qualifiers to what it is to be a leader. Two qualifiers, filled with the Holy Spirit, and that they would be wise. And they say, you know what? You guys lead the church. You guys be leaders of leaders, of leaders. And begin to carry out the work of the ministry in this church. And what's fascinating about this is they chose seven people, one of which is Stephen, as I said, in Acts chapter 7, gives the longest message that we see in Scripture, and he's ultimately uh, a martyr for the church. But what's interesting is that the seven names that are given for these leaders are Hellenistic Jews. They're not Hebraic Jews. They're Hellenistic names. And, And it would really, I, I, I struggle using this as an illustration because I don't know if this is going to get me in trouble. It didn't get me in trouble first service, I, I don't think. Nobody said anything to me about it. But essentially what's taking place here is in our culture, let's just say that uh, the Hispa- all the Hispanics in our church are being treated differently, being treated poorly. And, and Hispanics group together and they're like, hey, this is a problem. Like, why are we being treated differently? Why This doesn't work for us. I'm walking down the stairs. Barb gives everybody a hug, but she doesn't give us a hug, right? And, and we're being treated differently. We're being treated poorly, and we're being marginalized. And, and then what would happen is they would come to the leadership of the church, and the leaders would say, okay, let's get some leaders here, and we appoint seven Hispanic leaders to help lead us into the church that we want the church to be. What's happening here is they're not just saying, hey, let's, uh, we'll, we'll solve this problem in, in and of ourselves. No, they're saying we want to elevate, we want to find leadership so that we become the church that God wants us to be. 
So it goes on and says, uh, so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And listen to this, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Even these other religious leaders, they're going, you guys have got this figured out. You you guys are like absolutely navigating this cultural problem, this cultural divide without turning inward, without bickering, without fighting. Instead, you're actually doing it in love. We want to be a part of that. And so many of the other religious uh, priests became obedient to the faith. They converted to the faith. So these are the principles that are really, really important. First, this group of people refused to be overwhelmed. The, the problems of the poor in their time, even in Jerusalem, were huge at this point. But they didn't say, oh man, this is, this is too big. There's nothing we can do about this. We just throw their arms up and say, uh, the problem is just too massive. Instead, they, they, they just said, we're going to do what we can. Let's go after it. And they assumed that it was wrong for there to be any prejudice. They said, secondly, and we talk about this in our connection class, that everyone's a minister. In this passage, we we see it, but in the Greek, the the apostle, we don't see it in this translation, but in the Greek, the word apostles there uh, call themselves servants. We're servants. And they said, choose yourself servants who will lead so that all the people of God will be servants together. And here's the the big news flash for today. We are the church. We are it. We are servants called to do the work of the ministry. He says, we're going to fix this. We're going to do what we can. I want to talk practically about what that means when we own a problem in our culture, in our society, in Galatians chapter 6, it begins to talk about, it gives us a sense of, of what it means for us as a church to own a problem because at the core of this, this is what I pray for, that we will do as a church. That we will not be overwhelmed by the, the challenges that our culture faces us, but we'll actually do for one what we would like to do for all. Look at what it says in Galatians 6, 9 through 10. It says, don't get weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll receive a harvest if we do not give up. It's talking about a a moral good, an ethical good. It's talking about caring for people. It's, It's serving others. And it says, don't get weary in serving others. Don't get weary in doing these good things, because we will receive a harvest if we don't give up. It goes on to say, therefore, as we have opportunity. And that Greek word there for opportunity is kairos. This opportunity is a unique God-given opportunity for us. So there's the, the promise where he's saying every one of us, every day God is going to provide for us this unique opportunity, this divine moment, this kairos, if you will. Therefore, as you have kairos, this opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to the household of God. So the concept of this passage that Paul is giving us, that he's writing to to this church, he says, God promises that if you go out, if if you get up in the morning and you say, God, I will take advantage of every divine moment that you provide for me, 
that he's going to give us this opportunity to capture this, this moment, this kairos. But this is the phrase that's really, really important for us to hold on to. We have to be willing to do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. The challenge with that is it rattles in our head because as children, we grow up in this world and you've maybe experienced this in your lifetime where you go to your parents and and you're asking for something, right? You know, you're in a group of people or your friends are there and you like ask for some candy or you go to a teacher and you say, hey, can I get dismissed early? You, you, you go and you're asking and you're requesting for something and inevitably there's a, a phrase that is given to us as children that we don't like, but it's a phrase that says something like, if I do this for you, then I have to do it for everyone. If I let you be dismissed early, then I gotta let the whole class go. And, but then there's this other dialogue that takes place in our brain that... Uh, Maybe you don't think this way, but I think this way, where I say, no, you don't. I don't say it. I think it. You don't have to let everybody go. Like, I'll be the exception to the rule. Like, I won't tell anybody. You don't tell anybody. Let's just let me, you know, I, I'll take the candy. I won't eat it in front of anybody. Let's just, let's just keep this between me and you, Mom. Like, we, this is our little secret. We believe that we're this exception to the rule, and it's really the lie of Satan, It's the strategy of Satan to try to overwhelm the people of God when it's being bold and authentic and listen to the power that this lie has. You can't do for everyone that's poor. You can't solve the whole foster care problem in our city. You can't fix homelessness. You can't do this. You can't do that. And what happens is all of a sudden we start looking at these problems and we start thinking, you know what? I can't do that. I can't solve that problem. I'm just one person. I can't do any of this. But as Christ followers, we we can't crawl into that hole and hide. We can't. And so we make the bold decision to say, you know what? I may not be able to do for everyone, but I can do something for someone. Now, I understand that there may be some of you here this morning who you don't even know if you can do something for the one. Right, because you went to the doctor, you got a diagnosis, and it's overwhelming, and, and you just you don't, you don't know what's next for your life. For others, you're facing family issues in your life, and you're like, I'm just focused on my family, and I, it's just too overwhelming to think of the other problems in this world. For others, it's my job situation, and it's like i, I got to work another 20 hours just so that I can accomplish what I need to get done, and, and there's just too much going on. Everything's, life is just overwhelming to me. I just can't. But this is what Jesus said to us. He says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. He says, if you'll trust me to do what I do, if you, if you step out, if you do for one, even in the midst of, of overwhelming busyness of life and all of that, I will make up the difference. I will bring strength into your life. And so the bold question for all of us to ask this morning is, who is my one? Who is your one? Just because I can't do for everyone doesn't mean I shouldn't do for one. And so we look for the one. 
What is the unique opportunity? What has God called you to be involved in? Who's the single mom in your life that you can help? Who's the struggling family? Who's the foster care child who you can make a difference in their life and propel them to a better future in their life? I don't know if you know this, but we actually have a foster care ministry in our church called Lift. And that foster care ministry was started because a bunch of people chose one. We have an oasis ministry in our church who focuses on the one. It's a ministry for children with special needs, and we have people who are assigned to the one to care for them, to, to, to free their families up, to be a part of service, and, and to do that knowing that their child is going to be loved and cared for. In fact, just in between services, I had a conversation with one of our Oasis buddies, and, and she was saying, I got to make crafts today with my buddy. And it was just an amazing time in service, and she's like, I love it. It's the thing that I love to do. It's her one. What is your one? Kathy Richards, uh, who's in first service, she goes down to S.A. Hills, who's a partnership ministry of ours, and ministers to children in an after-school program with S.A. Hills who are often forgotten, often marginalized, and often in need. And she goes down and she serves them because they're her one. See, boldness is saying, I will not be overwhelmed by the enormity of the challenge or the enormity of the problem. It says, I'm going to just show up for the one. And when we show up, we show up like Jesus. See, oftentimes what happens is because of our maybe socioeconomic situation or because of our intellect, we'll often go into circumstances and situations that, that maybe need help or need to be addressed. And we think we are the solution to the problem. We think that we can come in and that we can fix it. We can throw money at it. We can, uh, we can strategize it. And, and really all that we're being asked to do is not come in and fix and throw money at it. It's just to show up. And be Jesus to a people who are needing Jesus. We come in in our own humility. See, Jesus showed up. He came from heaven and came into this earth, put aside authority, strength, and all of those things. And he just humbly came and said, could I serve? He just showed up. I have the opportunity to talk to pastors who are doing what I did 12 years ago in church transition. And, and in this process, there's inevitably questions that come up about like, you know, how did you navigate this? What did you do in this circumstance? How do you get through all of the difficult times? And my response to them, nine times out of 10, is you just show up. 80% of, of my job is to just show up. Even, even when you're not feeling it, you just show up because you care for people enough to just be present. So we show up like Jesus. We show up as servants. He gave up all of authority, power, strength, and, and he just comes to serve. And then we show up in the power of the Holy Spirit. We show up as a servant, but we show up 
with a message of Jesus and we're going to show up with the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we say, I'm going to do for one what I might not be able to do for many. A couple of weeks ago, we gave you the opportunity to, we brought a, a need before you as a church. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that there was a situation in which we had a, a single mom who needed a place to stay. It's a difficult circumstance, difficult situation. And, uh, and it used to be that uh, we would, as a church council, we would kind of make these benevolence decisions together uh, in a room because we're trying to steward the resources of the church well. And one of my council members challenged me on that and said, wait a minute, you're really, you're eliminating the ability for us as a church to actually be the church and surround somebody who's in need. And as much as I don't like to admit it, they were right, and that's the pride side of me. And so we brought it to the church two weeks ago, and you guys showed up. We had over nine people respond to that, and I'm sure there was many more who were processing and thinking through that, and, but just said, hey, I have a room. We have a space. It's not being used. And I'm happy to report to you that uh, this person now has been settled in their in a safe place, in their own place, is now being surrounded by women who love and care and is serving and helping this person in this season of their life. That, yeah, you guys are better than first service. They didn't even clap. You guys showed up, and so I just want to say thank you for showing up. Thank you for for. Being the church, it's, it's in our DNA. It should come naturally to us, but it sometimes doesn't. And sometimes the problem seems so big that, that churches will often just say there's nothing that we can do about it. When I would just say, you guys showed up, you did something, and you were, for one, what maybe we couldn't do for many. Maybe we can. Maybe there's opportunity. Maybe there'll be future opportunities for us to do more. But I would also say boldness and living this out in our life is not always something that's huge and grand. Sometimes it's just being there. For us as a church, it's our responsibility as a church council to steward the resources we have to make a difference. As a council, we're trying to steward our resources well to take care of those needs that we have through benevolence. Uh, we're trying to, and setting money aside, we're, we're supporting ministries like SA Heals, who uh, they have just started their uh, ministry into the schools because schools just started. Uh, they just launched after a summer break their church plant. Uh, their church, SA Heals Church, the gate meets in a pizza joint uh, down in their community, and uh, they meet in the back of the pizza place, and here's the thing, though, is the reality is, is a lot of the people that come to church can't afford the pizza that they're at the, at the place, and so we get to be one of four churches who are sponsoring the pizza every month. Now, I'm not saying that to say, oh, good job, because honestly, it's like 250 bucks. We could easily do that as a church. But it's because of giving, it's because of, of the support of this congregation that we are able to do those things. And I think there's room to do even more than what we're doing. And so we support SA Hills, we support Lavish. Uh, we had a group of people who uh, came and did uh, the, um, the boxing party where they box up gifts for the women in 
strip clubs and the sex industry and are able to give them gifts and love the one, even though they may not be able to love the many. That we have an opportunity to, to just show up, to love, to care for, to make a difference, no matter how overwhelming the problems may seem. I want us to close with the the question, who is your one? Who who is God, what group is God stirring in your heart to minister to? Maybe you were, maybe you met Jesus when you were in junior high. And you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I would love to make a difference in a group of junior high girls' lives. Maybe they're your one or your five. Maybe you met Jesus at high school camp, and so maybe your one is to just show up to be a counselor at camp. Maybe, maybe your one is to bring food to one of our foster families or to babysit for, uh, for one of our foster families in our church. Maybe your one is to go down to S.A. Hills and to serve in their after-school program. I don't know what your one is, but I would invite you to ask the question, what is my one? And who could I, where could I show up and just serve and just bring the message of Jesus and be empowered by the Holy Spirit to make a difference? Let's pray.